Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Welcome to the latest Cal Podcast with me, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Llewellyn Usher. Today's guest is Alistair Campbell, a well-regarded journalist, author, strategist and broadcaster. He's principally known for the roles he held during Tony Blair's leadership of the Labour Party. A central figure during Mr Blair's time as Prime Minister, he was Downing Street Press Secretary, Director of Communications and the Labour Party's Campaign Director for the 2005 United Kingdom General Election. Currently Editor-at-Large of The New European and Chief Interviewer for GQ, Alistair continues to act as a consultant strategist and as an ambassador for several mental health charities. A notable author, he's published 16 books, including his well-received series of diaries. As someone who's been both a follower and a leader himself, and an observer of some of the globe's most recognised leaders, Alistair is ideally placed to discuss this topic today. Alistair, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming in, in person, Pleasure. Uh, on a beautiful summer's day here in Sandhurst. Well, it's a fabulous place to be in this... You've got some brilliant trees here as well, which... Which we're definitely going to go and have a look at. Take a few pictures of trees Support your wider interests later (laughs) on. Um, If I can kick off just by asking you, and obviously, uh, as we we discussed, uh, this is is about leadership. It's about understanding what our guests have had experiences of, good and bad, uh, but also what they feel in terms of their own leadership uh, and their own experiences, and indeed, perhaps what we might learn as well um, from, from you. If I start by asking you, what, what does leadership mean to you? I mean, when you ask that question, I always, I, I always think of this time when I was in Canada, and I don't even know this is, if this is accurate, but somebody told me something about the history of leadership. And I actually, because I'm not convinced it's true, I've never actually gone and checked it out properly. And what they said was that when the, old, when this, the, the waters froze over, and they had all these fishing boats who couldn't get out, and they had this ice cutter, ice cutting boat, and they called it the lead ship, and that became leadership. I kind of so like that because it says that basically I see it as making the decisions and doing the things that open up space for other people to be part of the team and indeed to lead. So it's, and then I think if you take it into a more technical rather than a kind of vision area, I think leadership is about the having the ability to make big decisions under a lot of pressure according to a strategic framework. So that's how I see leadership. I love that. That analogy is fantastic. And I think, you know, no one's ever explained it like that, um, which I think a lot of people are going to be interested to pick up on. But well, and, and that's I, I know I should go and check it out, but when they go and No, don't. I think let's leave it at that. That's done. That's good. <laughs> so that was it. it was the first ever leadership was a ship. That's the point. That paves the way and sets the conditions and everyone else can, can follow. Yeah, so the, the, the fishing boats then went out. As yeah. the sea opened, as, as the waters opened, the fishing boats can then go their own way. The leadership has opened the way for them and then they've gone off in their different directions. Brilliant. I like that. The, the, the second part of your point was about, obviously, the ability, the human ability to... Uh, and you know, in the military, we would look at it, you know, leadership about getting people or, or enabling people, encouraging people to do something they either perhaps don't want to or don't think they can do. That human ability, do you think that's born or made? I think both. I think, I think you, look, I think there are very, very, very few people who could become head of the armed forces, who could become head of a government, who could become, you know, top managers of the best football clubs in the world. Well, you know, when I say very few, there are, there are, we're, talking, we're talking dozens and hundreds rather than 
thousands and millions. But do they have skills that other people can learn from watching how they do it? I'm absolutely convinced that they can. Are there leadership skills within everybody? I'm sure that there are. It's then how they find them and then how they get harnessed by others. The other thing I think that's really important about leadership is, and I don't know whether the, whether the army would see it in this way because you're a very structured, rank-based organization. But I think the other thing that's really important about leadership and particularly its relation to teamship is that leaders exist at every level of the organization. You know, who's the first person I met when I came here today? It's the woman who signed me in at the desk. Now, if that person isn't able to emanate a sense of who and what you are in a very general kind of way, so like, what do you think of the military? You think, well, military, they're, you know, they're, they're organized, they're disciplined, they're clean. It's, so if I arrive there and it's all scruffy and there's papers all over the place, I'm getting a bad impression already. I didn't get that, by the way. It was good. <laughs> it's good. But, so it's like, like, you know, if you check into a hotel, if it's a big swanky five-star hotel, mm-hmm. the first leader is the guy who opens the door for you and yeah. says, can I take your bags? And you say, no, leave me alone. <laughs> Just let me check in. If it's a premier inn, it's the woman on, or the guy on the reception desk. They are leaders yeah. for that time. And I think within a campaign, um, this definitely applies to campaigns I've been involved in, whether that's political or charitable or public awareness, whatever. It's not just about the leader. Mm. It's about leadership at every level. Mm. So that's why I think this thing about how the leader works with the team and how the team works with the leader. I went, look, I wrote a book about winning and the, I talked about this holy trinity, which for me is strategy, teamship, and leadership. And the, I imagine them as a kind of, I'll describe it to your, to your listeners. I'm now circling my finger at ever ending wheel. That's how I see it. Mm. Strategy, teamship, leadership, those three have to be together all the time. But I think, you know, having been in a position where one is responsible for an organization, you it's really important that the, the young person who is the first person that you meet and, you know, David Marquet, who wrote uh, Turn a Ship Around, it's a great book about um, an, a submarine in the US Navy. That's exactly his point. We had Will Greenwood and Ben Fennell on here uh, a couple of months ago and Will referred to when he used to be training with England team, he used to go and see Ben, who's one of his best friends at university. The first person he'd meet at Ben's office was the chap who was the concierge open the door. He's the, he's the face of the company. Mm. He is he is as important for first impressions as the chairman of the company, Absolutely. which I think is really critical. And we sometimes forget our roles. Whilst we are a very hierarchical organization, I think we are becoming much more aware that, yes, there are designated leaders, commanders who own the responsibility and concomitant risk. But actually, a young person who's new to the organization might be the leader at that moment because they might have the best idea or certainly make the most impact at that moment. And also, I think the, a culture, and again, I don't know whether this lends itself in the military, but a culture that encourages people mm. not merely to think of their rank, that, they, you know, that, that they're not bound by where they sit in the organization, not to have views that are at least going to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you're interested in, in sport, I'm interested in sport. And you know, Dave Brailsford, when he was running Team Sky, and he, he, he used to say, um, ideas don't have rank, they have value. And a good idea can come from absolutely anywhere. Um, and I can give you a couple of really interesting examples. So I had a secretary, PA, called Alison. And when we were in the build-up to the Iraq war, which was, you know, quite a difficult time for everybody and very stressful and what have you. And Tony Blair was going to America to make a speech. C. Bush, 
have dinner, come back. And it was a it was a speech that mattered. You know, most speeches they matter a bit, but this one mattered quite a lot because it was kind of framing what was obviously going to be a very difficult period. We had a very kind of pen and paper approach to speech drafting. Tony's pen and paper, I'm pen and paper, Jonathan Powell is chief of staff, very pen and paper, David Manning, who is the main foreign policy advisor. So we're all scribbling bits of paper. Alison was the person who was putting it into shape. And when we were on the plane, I was back at the at the back of the plane briefing the media. Tony Blair was screaming for the latest draft that she typed up and, and, she, and he's, she said, well, I haven't shown it to Alison to check, I put it all in. He said, never mind that, give it to me. And he's, as he's sitting reading the speech, Alison says to him, this isn't really my place, but I'm the only person apart from you four that's read every draft. And I don't, please don't take this the wrong way, but I kind of don't understand what you're saying anymore. <laughs> so when she told me that story afterwards, she was always like shaking. She'd never done that before. She'd never done that before. She might have said the stuff to me about, I think you need to do this, I think you need to do that, but she'd never, ever done that before. It was interesting because he said, well, get me the original draft. He got the, she got him the original draft. And he said, you're absolutely right. I need to read it. And so that was one example. Another really good example was when, but practically the only thing that anybody can remember from the 2001 election is that John Prescott thumped somebody. I'm sure you remember that. And when that happened, Tony Blair was recording Question Time with David Dimbleby. And I was outside having to kind of deal with the fallout of John Prescott's, as he called it, connecting with the voters. Tony comes out of the studio. I hadn't told him before he went in because I didn't want to kind of, you know, trouble him. <laughs> and it would have been quite troubling. So he goes in, does the interview. I haven't even watched the interview. He comes out, he says, that was good. Oh, brilliant, Tony, absolutely brilliant. But we've got a problem. We get in the car. I explain what's happened. I describe what's happened. I say what John Prescott is saying about it. I say how it looks and how, you know, having seen the footage and so forth. And Tony says, oh, we're going to have to sack him. At which point, Terry, the driver, and Bill, the special branch guy, sitting in the front, both look round and they both go, you what? Like that. <laughs> that, that was that was a form of leadership because that was them understanding that the leader in the back of the car having been given some quite troubling information on the day of the launch of our manifesto was thinking of what decisions he might have to take and that was them saying I don't normally get involved in this stuff but I'm going to because I'm feeling something I, I felt quite pleased about that because what it said to me is we we had got that sense of teamship. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they didn't normally say things like that, but they felt at that time there was a danger we were losing perspective. And so they just gave their perspective. How do you inculcate that sense of the ability to... So we're, we're basically talking about leadership followership. We're talking about the ability to challenge. How do you set, how do you think, or who was it perhaps in organizations that you work with, not necessarily political organizations, were you in it when you were working in newspapers, journalism? Is that always from the top or can it be across your management team? Or, you know, that, that's absolutely critical about allowing that person, you, you, you rightly say, whether Dale, Dave Brailsford about, and we would absolutely mirror that, uh, you know, ideas, no, no rank you know, come up with an idea or, an, or observation because you might be the person and especially young soldiers who are at the tip of the spear. If you can see something that's not right or see something that's different, then, then tell us. Mm. And we talk about mission command, pushing responsibility down to the lowest level. How, how did you nurture that? 
It's hard to answer that. I think partly through my experience of, of, of leaders and bosses that I've worked with. So if I, it's interesting you mentioned newspapers, part of my, my, I was mainly at the Daily Mirror. And one of my best experiences of a boss was when I had a psychotic breakdown in the 80s. Mm. And I had left the Mirror to go to, I was headhunted and flattered into taking a job I should never have taken. I fell out with my boss that I left. He basically said, don't darken my door again. He was really, really, really pissed off with me. I then went away, regretted it the minute I'd left, knew that it wasn't the right decision, couldn't admit it to any myself or to anybody, spiraled out of control, drinking too much, working too much, had this terrible psychotic breakdown, got arrested. And he was one of the first people who phoned me up. His message was, after he'd sort of, you know, told me I shouldn't have gone and said, listen to me now, but his, his main message was, look, I'm not surprised at this, uh, but that doesn't define who you are. Once you've got better, come back here. I think that experience inculcated in me a sense of kind of you owe, you owe people who look after you like that. He eventually actually became the editor of my diaries. And we, we, he died a few years ago, but we made, you know, we were very, very close friends. And I went back to work for him later and then... When I sort of made the jump into into the political side of the fence, by then he was totally supportive. But I think I've always operated or tried to operate, and this is very very difficult. You know, you you operate in a world of of secrecy. Government often is 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 about secrecy, but I think within the organisation, operating a principle of maximum openness for maximum trust, mm-hmm. I think is really important. Yeah. Really trusting people with information, trusting people with your views, trusting people to be able to say they disagree and not feel that it's going to develop into some sort of terrible hierarchical or personality spat. So, and did that come from the top with, with Tony Blair? I think it did. I mean, Tony, one of his, definitely one of his strengths as a leader was that he, he didn't want to be surrounded just by people who agreed with him. He wanted to be challenged all the time. And also he was never... He was never somebody to rest on laurels. He, he, he didn't want to sit down after a big speech or a big interview and be told it was great. Mm. He wanted to think, well, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? So I think that sense of kind of relentless purpose is, is really important. But value, you know, it's about valuing people. Mm. And it's, I had, a, I had a guy, I wrote about this guy in the book, a guy called David Bradshaw, also at the Mirror. He was a colleague of mine at the Mirror. And then he worked with me in politics and he, into Downing Street and he's one of those guys that everybody likes he's just this sort of you know just a very very popular kind of guy very funny very clever brilliant wordsmith you know people kept saying why don't you promote him and I kept saying well I keep trying but he doesn't want to he wants to be where he is he thinks that's where he's at his best and I would argue he is a somebody like him is a classic example of teamship leadership his leadership comes from the fact that he's He's at a certain level in the team mm. and he really, he operates upwards and downwards. Yeah, that's quite interesting, isn't it? We've had a couple of guests say, you know, some people don't want to be the, the sole leader. They're very happy being that, you know, we might refer to them as a second in command yeah. uh, or just a, a component of it. And actually, we sometimes forget that they are as important mm. to the whole construct. But it's also important to have, I think, you know, if you, again, if you, if you look at political leadership, often it's there's always somebody breathing down your neck, yeah, um, who might be after your job, 
And whereas actually, if you've got people who are in the organization, but you all know they're happy where they are yeah. and they're very good at what they do, that's incredibly useful. And sometimes as a, as a presumably a, you've, you've experienced a balance between someone who may be the titular head leader of an organization, but perhaps de facto might be someone else who has the energy drive and wider vision to enable that person to be that leader, but actually they, they're actually the fulcrum. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, again, goes back to the point about leadership as a team. Mm. So, you know, you, in, in some private sector organizations, you, you, you might meet the chairman, you might then meet the CEO, you might then meet the chief financial operator, the mm. chief operator officer, and the financial officer. And, you know, depending on the organization, it won't always be absolutely clear who has the most power mm. because they'll be operating as a team. And I think that the other thing to remember is a lot of people are scared of leadership. They're scared of actually being the people. Yeah. They're scared of leadership or they're scared of the responsibilities of leadership? Well, it's the same thing because leadership is about taking responsibility. Um, no, I think a lot of people find their level and think, no, I don't, I, I don't, I can't go beyond this. Is that because they don't know that they can go beyond it? It might be, but they might be right. But how are they, they going to know if they don't push the boundaries or, 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 an organization they're in doesn't allow them to understand where Be, their boundaries are. Because they may have pushed the boundaries already. Okay. And they've got where they think they can go. And I was in Dublin yesterday and I was speaking at this event and, and as I came out, these two, they were both Brits. The two people came out and they, they basically said, look, you know, we'll listen to your podcast, watch you on telly, read your books, listen to you on everything you say. Why aren't you still in politics and why aren't you doing it? And why don't you go back in and really try to do something and sort of stop being the guy behind the scenes, but get up there and do it, which I get asked a lot. Mm. And I think within me, there is something holding me back, which, and I don't, I can't always define it, but I can remember there used to be times I would watch Tony Blair or other prime ministers that I saw or presidents or, you know, whatever. And I would think, I could, I could do that. Do you think it's fair? I don't know what it is, but I think it's the other times I would look at what they're doing and think and say, I'm not sure I could do that. If I, if I think of Gordon Brown during the, financial, the global financial crisis, could I really have? I don't think I could. So, and then it's about the journey that you have to go through to get to be in that position. So, you know, I, th I think, you know, maybe I'm somebody who, who feel that I found, I was a leader within the organization, within the team, but maybe I found my level. And I've now found it in a, what I do in a very different sort of life. And I lead in different ways in different organizations, but, but not as the leader of anything. I think it's fascinating how you know, you're, you're, what you're saying is charming with a lot of the things that we're talking about here in the center of our leadership, but that I know that I'm having conversations with, 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 with a plethora spectrum of ranks across the army um, about what it means to be a leader mm. and on occasion what it takes to be a follower so sometimes the best leaders are also good followers yeah. they know when they are ultimately take responsibility for the outcome of something mm. but on occasion you have to dive divest that responsibility to someone else mm. yeah, mission command for the military very simplistically top down yeah. someone at some point is going to go forward and do something but you, it's not the person who may be perceived to be overall in command, mm. they are in command and responsible for the outcome. Mm. Um, but actually, and you with that, you take responsibility for 
what happens on your watch. Um, but, but when you had, you know, I think it's interesting having this, this sort of the structural frame because how, how do you, because you, the way you were posing the question a minute ago was, I, I got the sense that you suggest, you, you feel that there's actually the capacity within all of us to, to go further, to go higher up the leadership ladder. But I, 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 just, I just think along, as people go through any organization. Yeah, I sort of look at it a bit more holistically. And, and I know we, we are all looking at this in the, as much as we can. And we'll come on to this perhaps in a minute about how one learns, whether it's physiologically, psychologically, whether it's professionally. And from this perspective, it's about being a leader. How do we set the structures and allow people to understand where their own limits are individually? And where the limits of your organisation are now, from a from from a military organisation, it's a little more binary perhaps than some organisations elsewhere. You know, we are trying to push constantly. You know, the old adage of train hard, fight easy is something that we we've all grown up with in the military. If the harder you train and are allowed to make mistakes, push to the point of failure, then you'll understand what you're actually capable of. Mm. Because you're not going to do that and you're not going to really know what human capacity is about, whether it's individual or as a team, unless you continue to push. And, and sportsmen, you, you know plenty of sportsmen who will tell you exactly the same thing. What do you think the central tenet of leadership actually is? And is there one or are there a, is it a diverse kind of smorgasbord of things that one needs to be a really good leader? I do think, look, you, you can look at any aspect of leadership I've uh, been reading about this new book that's coming out about the relationship between Barack Obama and Angela Merkel. Two very, very different sorts of people in so many different ways. Black, white, male, female, American, European, charismatic, less charismatic, inspirational, visionary, much more pragmatic, practical. They had an extraordinarily close relationship. Uh, I think closer than maybe than people realize in terms of how just how sort of locked in they were. And, but very, very different. You could, the, the styles of leadership were very, very different. So I don't think you can say there's one style of leadership. I do think that the single most important thing is having a sense of what it is you are trying to achieve, mission, purpose, rooted in values, and then it's about your ability to take decisions and take a team with you. And I, I think the best leaders have that. I do think the best leaders, when you look at them, if I listen to people and I think, mm, yeah, that guy, I think he's really got leadership skills. Somewhere in the mix, they are always, in my mind, always talking about strategy. I think they're always got a sense of an ability to, and this is so vital now in, in modern leadership in anything that has a public profile, of sort of keeping noise out mm. and, and being able to, to keep their own focus. And that is very, very hard. You know, you, you said you were meeting some football managers. I mean, I think if you look at the top level football managers now, they've got a global profile yeah. where they have literally millions of people second guessing them, thinking they're better than them. What's he picking him for? You know, why is he playing back three, not back four, back five? You know, I mean, <laughs> well, the in, any, in any sport, I think that's probably true. Well, but football is so high yeah, profile yeah. now. And that has an impact. I know football managers who think that they've lost their, they could be right, they could be wrong, but they think they've lost their job mm. because of radio phone-ins, of people constantly phoning in, okay, I'll say Radio Newcastle, <laughs> and just sort of endlessly giving the manager sort of grief. Well, who's to say 
I mean, does anybody seriously think that most football fans know more than Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp or Arsene Wenger or mm-hmm. whoever? They don't. And yet, so that part of leadership, I think, in the, in the modern age is becoming harder and harder because the noise around you is so loud. Mm. Social media, 24-7 news. Um, it's just a noise. Now, I think that, funny if I mentioned Wenger, he, he, he had this very interesting analysis. You should try and get him on, actually. He's very interesting on this stuff. He had this very interesting analysis where he talked about how the world has moved from vertical to horizontal. And in the vertical world, leaders could lead mm-hmm. because they could make decisions and the decisions work their way down the organization. But most leadership positions now are operating horizontally. So in his position, he was the leader, he was the manager, but he had to manage upwards to a quite difficult board. Yep. He had to manage downwards to his staff and players, and he had to manage sideways to sponsors, fans, media, stakeholders, all the rest. And he says that has made it very, very difficult. And I think that his big point is that that has created more and more pressures to be tactical all the time. Okay. Whereas the response should be to be more strategic. All right. So with that in mind, let's talk about your the, the trinity of OST your objective strategy tactics mm-hmm. and you know, our military audience will be relishing a, a three letter of abbreviation or that. I'll tell you a, a really easy way to remember this, right? <laughs> so my holy trinity is strategy, leadership and teamship. Yep. Okay. But within that, I define strategy as the God. Without which? Without which nothing is ever going to achieve. You can have, you can have somebody who's technically got leadership skills. Yeah. And you can have somebody who's technically got leadership skills and they build a good team. Mm-hmm. But if there's no sort of sense of strategy and purpose about what they're trying to do, yeah. then where does it go? Uh-huh. So, and then OST, the way to remember <laughs> OST is if I tell you it's Norwegian for cheese. Okay. <laughs> and the reason for that is when I wrote the book and I did, a launch, I did an event in Oslo and I, I had a whiteboard that said the three most important letters of the alphabet are OST. And they all started laughing because that means cheese in Norwegian. Brilliant. So our objective, yeah, what we're trying to achieve, S, strategy, the big how, mm-hmm. the big how. So in what we were doing in New Labour, modernisation, what Steve Jobs did in Apple when he went back a second time around, simplification. Yeah. In, I guess, mentioning Dave Brailsford, two words, but marginal gains. Um, yeah. So the objective in his case, win the Tour de France, first ever British team to do it. Strategy, marginal gains, excellence through innovation, call it if you like. And then tactics, everything that flows from that. And I think that back to the Wenger point, it's so easy. But all three are intrinsically linked. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I think the strategy is the hardest. Objectives are usually quite easy. Let's just unpick it with this. So in the military, we would we would recognize the when you give a set of orders, you have an intent paragraph. Mm-hmm which is your purpose, your method, and your end state. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's effectively, it, it, to a degree, what we're talking about. But, and and they, are, they are all interlinked. Uh, and then you have your, your main effort, the thing which, which you're going to resource in order to achieve your mission. Where, where do you see your unpacking that? You know, where, where, do you, where does your end state feature in your strategy? Is your strategy your end state or is your strategy your roadmap on how to deliver your end state? Or is that actually... I think the end state is the objective. Okay. And the strategy is the means, the the big how. I call it, the reason I call it the big how is because it is the plan, but it's kind of more than the plan. The tactics will 
tell you what the details of the plan are. So that's your resourcing? Is that your how you're going to do it? Is it with what? Where does that feature in that bit of OST? I think for me, it goes in T. Okay. Mm. Uh-huh. Now, maybe this is... It's interesting. When I interviewed Jose Mourinho, but it was really interesting because his disagreement, and I think, I think I said in the book that my sense was maybe that his understanding of strategy was a more military um, analysis. So let me, let me tell, I'll tell you what he said. And then I said to him, what's the difference between strategy and tactics? And he said, in my world, there is none. And I said, hold on a minute. I'm not buying that. So, so within the OSG context, objective for him is to win trophies and win titles. Yeah. And he sets out to win every game. Okay. He said for every game, he builds a, he builds a, a tactical model and that is his strategy for that game. If I'm playing whole city away, that is a different tactical model to Liverpool away. If I'm playing Liverpool at home, that's a different tactical model to Liverpool away. I'm analysing their strengths and weaknesses. And, and he said, his idea of strategy yeah. is how do you change the tactics when the original strategy isn't working? And that's what I mean by whether that is a more battlefield understanding of, of, of how strategy operates. I disagreed with him, but, but that was from my perspective as a political strategist. Yeah. But I, see, I can see in sport, because tactics are such a part of, you know, whether the words become a bit confusing. Well, you'll see your analogy of the Tour de France, or you, in, in the book you talk about, you know, winning the World Cup, whether it's a round ball or a, an oval ball, uh, or indeed any ball. Your strategy is the way in which you're going to set out your, your effectively your campaign strategy. Yeah. The tactics are the tactics do you, you employ per game or per quarter or per per phase. Yeah, but all per and how you then resource it is what you're talking yeah, about. Exactly. So perhaps we so might look at it. Give you a really good example of Brailsford. Okay. Yeah. Dave Brailsford has got one of the most quirkiest sort of mind. So and he's a good, you know, he's a good mate of mine and I've worked with him and so he <laughs> when he first started out these guys phobia and he said, <clears throat> You know when you do election campaigns, what are those buses like? I said, what, with the campaign buses, they're terrible. They were horrible. I hated them. Why? We had to career around on the bus. He says, well, what was the best bus you ever went in? And I said, well, I can't remember. But, you know, he said, well, I want to find the best bus that there's ever been, right? And I want the best bus designer. And now I would say that's, that's a tactic. It's got nothing to do with riding a bike. Mm. But And he got the bus, and I, I, I went on the bus, and it was extraordinary. They all had their own seats that were fitted for them. They had, if you had an Android phone, you had an Android charger there. If you were Chris Froome, Bradley Wiggins had an iPhone, he was on his iPhone charger and his thing. Yeah. You know, it was just like minuscule attention to detail. Now that's not, I don't think that's strategy. This, well, the strategy is everything's got to be the best marginal gains. Yeah. So for example, another one, the players travel with their own pillows. Yeah. Sleep, incredibly important. Tour de France, they tell you, the tour tells you where you're going to stay. You don't know if you're going to get a five-star hotel or a two-star hotel. Yeah. You can't carry your beds, but you can take your pillows. So the strategy is this sense of everything. We improve everything by little margins, but then it goes into that these massive tactical buckets. Yeah, the marginal gains are the, um, are the thing that allow you to not be distracted from your objective. Yeah. Whatever. And also, I think it's the mindset. There's a great quote in the book from Arianna Huffington. And she said, innovation is the mindset that says everything is work in progress. Mm. And I think, I'll tell you another, I think another thing that happens, and this happens a lot in politics, people get quite satisfied very quickly. They think they've done a good job on something, which mm. they may have done, 
right? But I think if you've got a mindset that says, however well you did it, you could have done it better, I think that's more productive. I remember once Alex Ferguson saying, he said, you see that bus you're on? He said, you need a massage table on there. I said, Alex, the idea of having yeah. a massage table on yeah. the campaign bus is that. One, one can already see the headlines <laughs> that would have put exactly. it Can we perhaps it's just, just look at the flip side of successful leaders and, and maybe even what the opposite of success, ha- uh, the opposite impact of success might have on people that we all know as leaders or, or, or indeed people that you might have experienced yourself. What do winners lose in pursuit of their objectives or their, or their aims? You know, how, and how does that affect them? Have you seen that in any way? You know, how do people cope? How do leaders that you've seen, worked with, and indeed yourself, you know, cope with that mental pressure of what you're having to sacrifice to achieve success as a leader? I must admit, the image that popped into my head then when you were asking that question was once, I remember, it actually was a military thing when... I think it was Charles Guthrie was Chief of Defence Staff. Field Marshal, yeah. Yeah, and he came over to Number 10 and wanted to see TB. And As he was Chief of Defence Staff then, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. And it was about um, a Special Forces operation of some sort and basically had to get sign-off, you know, and, and he explained that there were risks and et cetera. I can remember that. So then Tony said, yes, I think George Robertson was there as well. Off Charles went, and then we went back into whatever it was that Tony Blair was dealing with that day and meetings and this and that. And there was something quite big going on. I can't remember what it was. And I remember the, so I was in his flat upstairs at about 11.30 at night or something. And he, anyway, I said, I'm going home now. See you tomorrow. And I walked, he was at the corner in this window and I walked to the door and I opened the door. And I don't know what made me do it because I was actually quite keen to get home. But I just sort of stopped and I turned around. And I just watched. I just looked at him for a couple of minutes. He was just literally. He was just sitting at that window, and he was looking out over the Scars Parade. And I don't know what he was thinking, but I'm pretty sure I do know what he was thinking. Um, and I did have a really powerful sense of of how lonely he felt because of the responsibility of what he just agreed to. Yeah, because he because he as it happened, it all turned out fine. Mm. Um, but it was it was that knowledge of knowing that it might not, yeah. and that ultimately he'd had to make that that decision. And you know, when, when it comes to, for example, we still get an awful lot of criticism about Iraq and and so forth. And and I don't mind people criticising the policy if they want to. You know, they're entitled to do that. What I can't stand is when people question motives in him in relation to what he was trying to do, based on the understanding that he wouldn't care what would happen to people that he was asking to do things that he wouldn't necessarily do because he's not in the military. Um, and I remember then thinking that is that is a really lonely place to be. Um, and I saw that as well with, with other kind of big decisions. I mentioned Gordon Brown in relation to the global financial crisis. I mean, when you're making decisions that big, mm. with an impact that big, mm. you know, it's I think it is incredibly lonely. Um, and I think when you say, how do you, how do you deal with it? I've, I found in my own whenever I was in difficult situations or under a lot of pressure or getting attacked by the media or by politicians, whatever it might be, you know, that's when I think you do come to rely very, very, very heavily on family and on friendship. But I was in a position in relation to Iraq when Fiona, my partner, really didn't support the government policy. Um, 
So, and, and Jonathan Powell was in exactly the same boat. Uh, his partner said, mm. she wrote a whole play about it. Um, so it's like, that. that's when it becomes very, very difficult. When you, the, 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 the sort of emotional base that you have, for, which I think we all need, whether we mm. recognize it or not, that emotional base, when that, that is eroding as well. But I think, you know, some of the things I think you have to do, I think you have to look after yourself physically. I think if you, you know, I'm sure in, in your world, that's kind of, a, it's kind of a given. But in most leadership places, it's not a given. Mm. People actually let that go very, very quickly, I think, if they're not careful. I think you've got to, you know, I, I, I really think it's important not, and this is hard, this is really hard, but it's important not to allow yourself to be utterly consumed by the task in hand. It is important to have other things that you do, sleep being the most obvious. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, I always say to people in a crisis, for example, in, in, in politics, listen to music, not the news, read books, not newspapers. You know, if, you, if you're in that bubble and you do things which are just going to keep you in that bubble, it's not very healthy. Yes, and in the course of the world we live in, me, the media impinges on all of our lives, yeah. whether it's you know directly or indirectly, whether it's on our phone or whether it's on the radio. It's it's the 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 advent of twenty four hour commentary or opinion um, is is something that, that that doesn't allow sometimes these things, and one has to just try very hard. And that's I think part of the team bit. It's about being a leader, but allowing someone else to take leadership of that situation go right stop now let's all go and do something different or let's go for a run or let's let's clear ahead Mm. because we need to hear otherwise we get consumed by the issue as you you've been very open about your own struggles with mental health Mm. and you've been rightly recognized as as being a real champion for investment analysis and development of better structures and better Mm. understanding of, of mental health and that's something that we definitely look at a lot in the military. It's something that perhaps over the years we may be overlooked. Mm. Um, but whether that's a broadly societal, cultural shift or, or not, but certainly in the last few years, we've really looked hard at that. W- with your own experiences, perhaps if, we, if you'll be happy to talk about that in a bit mm. more detail. You had a, 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 did you refer to it as an experience or, or whether it was a full breakdown it was a, in, it was a in, in 1986 when you yeah. were working in, in, in London yeah. in Fleet Street? So my first, actually my first big experience of mental ill health was, was my brother when he was in the army. Right. He was in the Scots Guards and he was diagnosed as having schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And although my dad was a vet, we didn't know anything about mental illness. You know, so it just wasn't a thing. Yeah. And I remember my dad and I we went to a military psychiatric hospital in Netley, near Southampton. Mm-hmm. And... That's when my absolute fascination with mental health and mental illness developed because it was, this was in a period when, I don't know what, this, what the rules are now, but if you wanted to, you know, if you, you, you had to buy yourself out if you wanted to get out of the military ahead of time. Yeah. And a little bit different now. Right. Yeah. But I think there was a little bit of suspicion that sometimes people were, you know, trying to get invalided out. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair to say, I'm not criticizing them because this was the culture at the time, but it was quite a tough regime. Mm-hmm. But also, I stayed there. I stayed down in Southampton. I stayed with my brother while I was in this hospital for quite a long time. And they were great. They let me in. They let me sort of sit around talking to these guys all day. So that was when I got a real sense of, of how varied this was, of how broad it was, 
and at how important it was. And, and there were some amazing characters there. And I was fascinated by them. I was fascinated by their relationship with the, with the, the medical guys as well. So that was, so when I had my breakdown, I, which was 1986, so Donald was about just under a decade before that. And he was, he was, he left the army uh, as a result of his schizophrenia. When, so when I had my breakdown, I thought it was schizophrenia. Okay. Uh, because I was hearing voices. And Donald talked a lot about how... You said you were hearing music as well, like bagpipes. Bagpipes, brass yeah. bands, Elvis, Abba, Jack Brell. It was all going on at once. Browse at home, rouse at work. Mm. And it was, it was like, I can't... When I, when I got arrested, one of the reasons the police told me later they arrested me is because I was standing in this public building. It was a council building up in, in Hamilton in Fife. And I was with Neil Kinnock, who was leader of the Labour Party at the time. And... I was do, I was I was covering my my I was slapping my face my hands on my face like this and I sometimes see people do this there and the reason was I thought my head was exploding inside and it was made of glass and I couldn't understand why there was no blood really so I was looking at my hands and why why aren't I bleeding because the inside of my head is just all these noises and there was no there was no warning or or was it you just didn't recognise it I think there was a lot of warnings was there yeah I think there were lots of warnings. Drink, big factor. Uh, I'd been drinking a lot. I was drinking a lot the night before. I'd had a row with Fiona. I hadn't gone home. I'd booked into a hotel and drink, emptied the minibar. I woke up coding my own vomit. I had to go to Heathrow and buy a new suit, a new shirt, a new tie, get on a plane. I then hired a car. And it's so weird how people that become really important in your life figured in this story. So I was just a journalist back in 1986 in my late 20s. Neil Kinnock was visiting Faz Lane, mm -hmm. which was in Gordon Brown's constituency. So Neil and Gordon were there. I'm a, I get on a roundabout in a hire car and I cannot get off the roundabout. I don't know how many times I went round it. I just could not turn the car off the roundabout. And that's when I realized I was just like, I wasn't hearing voices at this point. So then I, I went, I drove, I drove into Faslade. I went to the, the reception area and I, said to, I just said to this guy, look, these are my car keys, I'm not fit to drive. Um, so I knew then something was unraveling. He was, he was actually really nice. He, he sort of took the keys, he checked it out. He, he could see, I think you can tell when somebody's kind of really, really distressed. I then made my way off to Perth Neil had moved on to Perth by then. I'd lost contact with him because I'd been around, around, around about God knows how long. Got to Perth, uh, saw Neil very briefly. Patricia Hewitt was his press secretary. She said, look, you know, we're a bit worried about you. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I had lots of that in the build-up, mainly from Fiona, my partner, hmm. saying, you're drinking too much, you're not sleeping enough, you're wired all the time, what the hell's going on? And I'd be like in that kind of... Oh, pull yourself together, you're the problem, not, not me, da, da, da. I've got a new job, I've got to do this. I was just, I was just spiraling out of control, but I was functioning because I had incredible energy. Mm -hmm. And the people at work were, Fiona actually phoned my boss and said, I'm really worried about him. I think he's heading to a breakdown. And she said, no, we think he's amazing. He's just got incredible energy. And then it just, the switch went, the switch went. By the, the time, by the time the noises in my head started, and the, and the slapping my face and all that. These two very nice plainclothes policemen came and they were the first people I admitted to. I was, I was, I had a problem. They actually they were really nice. First one just said, are you okay? And I said, I don't think I am. 
And the other one said, do you want to, do you want to come with us? I didn't, honestly didn't even have a clue who they were. They were plain clothes. I said, yeah, I think I should. And the next thing I was in the back of the police van. <laughs> then I was locked up. Then I went absolutely crazy and the police cell banging my head and punching the walls and taking all my clothes off. And eventually they found a doctor and they were great. They, they basically said, look, you know, you're not well. Mm. Uh, uh, we think you should go to hospital. And, they, they, and I did. And that was the beginning of the sort of turnaround. Rather like PTSD for those of us who've, who've suffered with it. It doesn't go away. Mm. The, 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 the images, the, the experiences, they, they're just correctly filed. They're, they're, and one understands the triggers that might, mm. might start something or, or would have started something in the past. Do you, do you now recognize signs where perhaps you might be heading back towards... You, yeah. you, 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 you very openly talk about depression mm-hmm. um, and you know, depressives, manic depressives are, are fluctuate between mania and, and, and the rock bottom. Yeah. How do you balance that now? How, do you, how have you learned over time to do that? It's taken me a long time. Um, so after I had the breakdown, lots of good things happened. Fiona stayed with me. My boss, as I said earlier, took me back in the mirror. So I started to again right at the bottom, rebuilt my career. I stopped drinking. I didn't drink for 13 years. I did fall off the wagon and I do drink moderately now, but I think, I think what it was, was I think I've got an addictive personality and back then alcohol was an addiction. But what I've learned over time is actually all of these addictions, whether it's work or sport or whatever it might be, they're all about covering up the depression. I think. Um, and funny enough, I, when you say what, I, what I, I, I've written a book about depression, which was yeah. partly an exploration for myself, I'm really glad when people say it helps them. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad when people say that, and I'm glad when they say it helps them. But I kind of did it as an exploration for myself. I was actually writing about everything and going over everything and trying to get to a, a conclusion. And the conclusion I've got to is that I'll always have depression from time to time. But I've got much, much better at dealing with it. I actually woke up literally two days ago, chronic. Could barely speak. With um, no precursor. Do, 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 do you reflect back on, because obviously this is a fundamental problem that many people don't recognize. And, and certainly for those people who are leaders, we go back to the bit about mm. the dark side of leadership, the isolation and the pressure. Yes, and we talk a lot about actually enabling one's people to see how you think and feel mm. is as important as making decisions. Yeah. You know, having empathy and allowing people to understand the real person yeah. is something that traditionally we've, we've locked away. Yeah. But actually the ability to empathize with each other allows one to understand the, the pressure, the wrestling with, yeah. with decisions that's going on. Well, I think I... I do reflect back on it. So the one a couple of days ago, I've been through a very, very busy period. I've been quite high profile, doing a lot of media stuff. Um, I'm also in the middle of writing another book, which I'm late with. I'm making this TV series. I was just too busy. And I, I felt myself getting a bit manic. Now, I've never been diagnosed as bipolar, but I do have manic episodes. But bipolar is... Um... Isn't, isn't bipolar disorder a 
uh, akin to manic depression anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like almost, yeah. if not some, if not the same thing, then almost very similar. And yeah. forgive me for the, no, no, the psycho, ma- no, manic, psychiatrist. Aren't they? Manic depression, bipolar disorder used to be called manic Quite, depression. Yeah. And they've changed, they've yeah. changed them. This is American psychiatric bible that sets itself up as the guardian of all things psychiatric, and they, they've changed the name. But I've definitely had mania, but I've never been diagnosed as, bi- as bipolar because most of my experience of on that scale yeah. is usually I'm fine. Most of the time I'm fine and I'm in a place I'm happy to be. I, d- I get these really bad depressive episodes, usually quite short. Sometimes they can go on for weeks, but usually quite short. But what I've got much better at, so like when this one hit the other day, and it was a really bad one, it was like I woke up and I just didn't, couldn't open my eyes, didn't want to get out of bed, I couldn't speak. Fiona's got much better at dealing with it. She just sort of, she doesn't push me too hard. And, and I, I actually had to go to Ireland and in a funny sort of way, it helps that I could just go and have things to do, like get on a plane, uh, you know, book into a hotel, sit in my room for a couple of hours, just try and get my head in gear. And then I did stuff and I did it fine. I did it absolutely fine. I had to do a speech. I did it. People wouldn't necessarily have known. They might have thought I was less energetic than I normally are, but most of them I don't think would have noticed. And But then after that, I'd be exhausted. So then I need to sleep. So I was meant to be out doing a thing late at night, I went to bed at nine and I took a sleeping pill and I slept. Um, and do you think that's what allows you to balance the equilibrium again? I think so. I think so. I mean, what I've noticed is since I've really gone into it in depth and seen a psychiatrist over a few years and taken medication, which I still do, and looked after myself exercise-wise and diet-wise and that sort of stuff, I have definitely, and things like, following things like Listen to music, listen to music, not the news, read books, not newspapers. I also, the other thing I notice when I'm going into a, a phase, and my friends can spot this now, I just get way too hyperactive on social media. And I'm conscious of it. I'm conscious of it, but I can't, there's something that I, I just I keep doing it. And, and it's just sometimes you need your mates to phone up and say, hey, put your phone down. And you recognize that now, do you? So you, you allow them. Yeah, if, if I trust them, it, 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 it depends how they do it. In fact, there's a really interesting example which involves you guys. So during lockdown, this is almost comical, right? Almost comical. During lockdown, the first long lockdown, I actually quite enjoyed it in a funny sort of way. It was very nice to discover that the person I was locked down with after 42 years together, I didn't mind being with her the whole day. The dog was really happy that we're both there. We, we, we developed this kind of rhythm. Mm. I also, had, I was working really hard. I was writing loads. I was, you know, and I wasn't having to travel and it was quite nice. So, but I could feel myself getting quite manic. And I ended up in a manic phase, endlessly singing different national anthems. And well, we could put you right on the spot now and get you get a good version of mine, Henry Van Halen. Gotta get in the audience. <laughs> so I was doing, and I was, and I was setting it. I was, I was changing the lyrics to talk about the political situation of the time. Okay. Let's say that Dude. I was doing, I was doing the French, the Russian, the South African, the American, and Fiona, who knows that this is part of what happens when I'm unraveling a bit. She was just saying, "I think you need to calm down. I think you need to calm down." And I went home. We'd walked the dog. I'd been singing all these national anthems. I went home and I thought, I've got to do, I've got to do God Save the Queen. I put a suit and tie, but it wasn't any tie. It was my brother's Scots Guards tie. 
Go to Guardsville then? Yeah, but it's not good for a non-Guardsman to wear, is it? Well, we can yeah. gloss over that. Okay, yeah. well, a lot of people didn't. I then put his medals on. All right. Not good, not good. And I then posted a video of me singing this crazy song that I've written. But then Johnny Mercer, who at the time was Defence Minister, tweeted basically saying, listen, mate, you should take this down. People could find this quite offensive. Hmm, I can but, see that. Yeah. And because I was in the mode I was in, Double down, double down, double down, double down. Phone goes, a guy called Martin Sheehan, who used to work for me in Downing Street, always calls me Gaffer. He said, Gaffer, do us a favor, turn your phone off. And that was the moment I knew. And I just, and I had a, I had a, I had a complete crash, mm. but it was necessary mm. because I'd kind of, I'd gone way up too high and I had to be brought down. Mm. And that was, that was what happened. I've actually since become quite friendly with Johnny Mercer. We had a really good chat about it and, you know, I think he understands that these things happen. Yeah, and having someone to, I think it's really important that, you know, in this perspective and in respect of being a leader, one needs to empower or, or enable somebody to be your, you know, have a stop mechanism, your, your yeah. conscience. But at your, the same time, something you were saying earlier before we were recording, at the same time, not curbing necessarily every piece of intuition, every bit of energy, every good idea. I have some great ideas and do some of my best work yeah. when I'm coming out of a depression mm -hmm. or when I'm going into a bit of a manic spell. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just watching that that's a bit dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and being aware of that and having people around you that you trust. Yeah. Whereas what happened in, in and, 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 and the thing is, I mean, social media is a nightmare. It is a nightmare. And of course, you know, it's important. Somebody like me who's campaigning and, you know, or promoting podcasts or books, or whatever, it's an important vehicle. Mm. But there are times when I just know, like some days I look back and I think, oh my God, how much did you tweet today? So from what you researched, but also in what you've seen over the years, you know, since you started in journalism in the late 70s throughout your career, what do you think quantifies winning? I think it's the, it's the meeting of really ambitious goals. So, Dave Brailsford, win the Tour de France, build the best cycling team in the world. If somebody wants to do a marathon in their 50s, right, they're not going to set a world record. But if they set, the, set themselves the ambition of getting below four hours, Mm. I think that's winning. Yeah. Okay. Right? So winning is not just about getting medals around your neck. Yeah. Winning is about setting yourself ambitious goals and trying to meet them. Right. So in an organization, so it's so that's a really quantifiable objective in a high performance team like uh, a international sports team, mm. where everybody naturally is striving towards a common goal. Mm. But even within that team, and we talked with Kate Richardson Walsh about this, and I've talked to a plethora of other people. Uh, we talked to international Olympic oarsmen. But actually take it down a level. Mm -hmm. You know, from that organization, you might have someone who's, their goal was just to get into the team. Yeah, for sure. Whereas someone who's of, 20, of 10 years experience of being in that team, their goal is get, not only getting to the final, they want to win. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance as a team, going back to being good leaders of good, uh, good team players, how do you balance in an organization where people, frankly, are just happy turning up to work sometimes? 
How do you balance individual and collective goals as a leader? Put it this way, I think sport does it best. If I were you guys, I'd be really looking at how sport does that. Politics does it pretty badly most of the time. And that's not just a party political point. I'd say right across the spectrum. Politics is not good at that fusion of leadership and teamship. I think that, I think the most important thing is recognising that individuals are individuals, that there are some, I was talking at the weekend, I was up at Magic Weekend, the Rugby League. I was talking to Sam Tompkins, who's one of the top rugby league players in the world. And he was saying that, so his brother, Joel, he went into rugby union, which, you know, very different sport, very different people, different backgrounds and so forth. But he said what he discovered very quickly, and he said it was the same for himself when he went to play in New Zealand and he's now playing in France, mm -hmm. that when you get into a, that rugby team, there is a joker. There is the guy who's really grumpy. There is the guy who's always complaining about everybody else. There is the guy who doesn't like training. There's, there's, there's that collection of people. Now, I would argue that the job of leadership, and he's a leader because he's the captain, but also the, the, the coach and the leadership structure more generally, is to make sure that whatever the defects and faults each of them have, that actually the attributes are maximised sufficient for the team as a whole to benefit. Mm. And eventually, so this is particularly the, the, the case in sport because you've got people who are, you know, they come in, say, in their late teens, early 20s, and then they're gone within a decade, mm. right? Now, that, when, when they're there and starting out, that feels like a lifetime, but it's not. So they're, they're suddenly they're starting out as the kind of young buck and then suddenly they're over here. So the job of the leader is to kind of be managing them but for the benefit of the team. And I think actually sometimes that means being very, very frank with them about their own futures. Now that's difficult and you get different styles of leadership. You talk to loads of football players and rugby players who will tell you that, you know, one of the strengths of their manager is that he would say different things to different people at different times about the same thing. Um, other leaders, they absolutely have the absolute principle, you know, you get everything straight from me. Um, so I, again, I don't think there's one style necessarily that, that will suit every every situation. Yeah, that's quite interesting about having two. Do the are the best leaders adaptive, or are they simply the best leader for that organisation at that time? Um, and, and can the, are the two compatible? I think you can get some leaders who's. I guess Mourinho is a good example. Mourinho strikes me as somebody who has a very very clear style of leadership. Hmm. And it, it does have a habit of running out after a while. That suggests maybe he's not that adaptive. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Whereas I think others you see who are, seems to me are, I mean, somebody like Sven, Sven Goran Eriksson strikes me as somebody who's, who's very adaptive to different sets of circumstances that he finds himself mm. in. Um, I, but I think it all comes back to the same point we made earlier, that there are, there are loads of good, really good leaders out there. And you can try to work out the kind of identical characteristics that they all have. And they will have them, mm. but they'll also have an awful lot of difference and, and something that makes them very, very special and very, very unique. When a leader is perhaps not getting it right, how can the organisation, and I'm, I'm absolutely not talking about politics at all, I'm just talking about generically. How does one try and sort of turn that around and make the leader realise that either they are right and need to persevere with 
that you know uh, alleviate doubt in the leader's mind, or indeed make the leader realise that they are absolutely going down the wrong, the wrong course, wrong path. I think that's very hard. I think that's very hard, and it will depend upon the relationship that the, that the leader has with the people that are close to him mm. or her. But I go back to the point I made earlier about being able to be honest. I think a confident leader would expect the people that, that they trust to be honest with them. Um, One would hope. Yeah, you'd hope, but it's quite a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Because people are... And then you're straying into realms of this sort of toxicity, but well, and also, both aggressive, but also passive toxicity by not making a decision. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and look, you know, I can remember this from when my brother was in the army. You know, every time he came home would be... He was always complaining about the people above him. Well, that's a soldier's prerogative. Exactly, exactly. But my point is that if that's, if you start, I like to think that certainly with the people that, that, you know, have worked for me, that I would like them to be honest with me and I encourage Mm. that. But I think that's because I've built up a relationship with trust over time. I think it's very hard to expect that in a management system. Yeah. Unless you encourage that. And even if you encourage it, there's going to be part of that person below you thinking, does he really mean this? Mm. You know? So I think that's a tough one. I, don't, I honestly don't know the answer to that. If you thought your boss was really going down the wrong track yeah. and you didn't necessarily have a great personal relationship, what would you do? Tell them. Right, okay, good. That's I mean, it's, it's... I'm sure that's the right thing. I think it's absolutely the right thing. But I think it's difficult for other people. Yeah, it's important to speak truth to power, I think. And I think too often... Too few people do that, which is why wrong decisions are ultimately made. And I think in the military, we are absolutely reinforcing this concept of a challenge culture, Mm. positive challenge, Mm. as opposed to destructive challenge, Mm. whereby people are allowed to comment. And it was always, and I know I'm I'm not alone as a commander commander of a battalion saying, you know, if you think I'm not right, come back and challenge me. If you think what we're doing is wrong, come up with a possible solution Mm. because you know, ideas, the Brailsford concept, ideas know no rank. You know, you might be primus into parus in terms of the fact that you're titularly head of that organization, but someone else who's not at the coalface and, you know, not, not overwhelmed by the minutiae of what they're trying to, trying to grapple with actually might be able to see the, the solution. So, so come at it and say, hey, look, you know, have we thought about doing it like this? And of course, in the military and, and in any organization, Fundamentally, if thing is, if, if something is going to be done poorly, you should absolutely challenge it. And if it's going to be done legally, you must challenge it. It's all. Mm. It's 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 a it's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, th- I, th- I think that's right. And maybe the military is better at this than than political and private sector organisations. I don't know. I can remember when you were talking there. What popped into my head was my experience during the Kosovo yeah. conflict because that was really interesting for me because there was a point at which. You know, if you think about it, NATO against Milosevic militarily is kind of, you know, it's Barcelona against Burnley. Uh, no, maybe not Burnley, maybe. They'd do very well there, wouldn't they, Alison? You're, you're a big... Yeah, no, I, I think we'd struggle against Barcelona, to be honest, at the moment. Okay. So, but, but where we were losing it was in the, I'd say, in the kind of strategic communication space. It was actually Clinton who said to, to Tony Blair that he thought that we should try to get a grip of the NATO communications. And I ended up going there. You worked there for a while. And I worked there for a while. And it was fascinating. And and Wes Clark was the Supreme Allied Commander. And it was very, very interesting. This relates Mm. partly to what we're talking about strategy as well. Because Clark said afterwards that it was only when we got the 
the messaging, I don't even remember, the messaging we ended, we ended up on was uh, his troops out, our troops in, refugees go home. That was a message. And everything sort of from the communication side of that then mm. flowed from that. And But it was very, very interesting. I, I remember going, it really helped that Charles got through his chief of staff and he said, you should give this guy access and mm. da, 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 da. But I remember going and from day one, had to work at it, but I felt I was entering a permissive environment where they wanted help on something that wasn't really their thing, mm. which was, you know, communication of a massive global story. And and what was interesting was the extent to which I got the feeling when I first got there that they really were blokes who shouldn't have been focused on what the media were doing, what the media was saying, actually were having to do that because mm. it, it wasn't being done. So I, I thought that was interesting that they, I, I honestly thought that it, I'd be going on a kind of fool's errand that I wouldn't be able to make any change at all. But actually, they were, they were very, very... By being a non-military person coming into an organisation to talk about... Yeah, by being a non-military person, non-NATO. There were lots of civilians in NATO. Yes. And they were all doing, you know, a perfectly good job. But I'll tell you what was really interesting from my perspective, because NATO itself had, has and, uh, and had such a sort of powerful brand, right? Because it is such a powerful brand. You get there and you, you just assume that all the things that you associate with really big organizations are in place. Yeah. And, and Jamie Shea, who was the head of comms guy, yeah. did a brilliant, he did a brilliant job. Who we've had on the podcast. Right, when he yeah. did a brilliant job, right? But it was like, it was him and a few other people. Mm. And that was, in a sense, that was the problem because he, he, was, he was just having to hold the whole thing. Mm. And so we were able to help put in place these kind of internationalized structures. But it was, it was, that, that was a very good example to me of, of where... I went in with my eyes open, but really thinking it would be very, very hard to get any sort of purchase. But actually, they were very open. So that's a really, yeah, I think that's a really interesting, good example of of coming into a diverse culture mm. without the lesser of the experience. How would you equate that with your experience when you went to do a similar job communications-wise with with the Lions in 2005. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, but interesting parallels between very, some of you are very passionate about sport, yeah. diverse culture, yeah. you know, four unions, yeah. common purpose, achieving the mission. Yeah. And yet... Didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a real, I mean, it, it is, the, the thing about that whole episode was, because I'd left number 10 in 2003 I knew I was going back to the 2005 campaign with Tony Blair, but I didn't want to go back in after that. Okay. So Clive Woodward, out of the blue, asked if I wanted to go to New Zealand, and the timing was virtually perfect. It was like election, few days, New Zealand. I'll never forget, it was my birthday, May the 25th, also Johnny Wilkinson's birthday, and it was the day that Liverpool beat, um, won the European Cup in Istanbul, and that amazing comeback. Yeah. And I did say to... Clive Woodward, I said right at the start, I'm not sure this is a good idea, Clive. And he said, well, they all say that our media operations are shambles last time. They, they say we need a heavy hitter to get a grip of it. You're a heavy hitter. I think it'd be great. And you can, you know, advise on other stuff, mindset and strategy and that, that, that. So I was keen to do it, but I always knew it would be, it would be tough. Mm. And the reason for that was that I think, do you know what? That was the thing that made me realize I probably could never get another communications job. 
Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Because it is, it just became too much about about me doing that job. Mm. I mean, within the look within a political campaign, the communications director is quite important, right? Within a sport campaign, it's all about the manager and the players. It's all about them. Yeah. It's all about the result. It's all about what happens on the field. It doesn't matter the other stuff. You have to do the other stuff, but it doesn't have the same impact. Mm. And so, and what happened was, I mean, it was almost comic. You mentioned Will Green. I made some really good friends of that trip, and he's one of them. But I remember Stephen Jones, the Welsh fly half, and he was yeah. such a good guy. And he's now a coach. And, and he's, he'd, say, he'd say, come on, Al, let's go out for a drink now. Come on, come have a drink with the boys. And the reason would be, we'd go to pubs, and he'd walk into pubs with all the lights. Here's Alistair Campbell. It's all his fault. Everything's down to him. He missed all the kicks. He dropped all the balls. <laughs> so they saw that it was all a bit ridiculous. Okay. Um, but I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it. And I learned a lot as well. I learned a lot about um, some of the stuff that they did in, because as you say, bringing four unions, four countries together, mm. who just in literally weeks before had been battering hell out of each other in the Six Nations, right? And they bring them together and suddenly got to be a team against the best team in the world. But I think it was, I learned a lot about how they did what they did, uh, in particular in, this, in relation to this thing about, about teamship. Mm. I'd say one of my strongest memories of Clive was him telling me that story about when he took the England World Cup squad mm -hmm. to the Marines. Down at Limpson. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, he said, uh, and he said at the end of it, the guy that was showing him around said, look, it's none of my business, but can I give you a list of the players I don't think are up to it? Based on watching them yeah. at that event, not playing rugby. And, and what was astonishing is Clive said it sort of ticked his own analysis. So that shows that's somebody in a different position of leadership watching other people in a different world yeah, and making sound judgments. It's fascinating. I'm just conscious of, of, of time, Alison. Maybe a couple more questions yeah. if I may. Um, just in that, just sort of maybe rounding off that bit about, I think it's really important and it's, it's absolutely you know, pivotal to what we're talking about here and, and is being discussed across the army. This about, bit about learning from failure. You, lovely quote from someone. I'll let you tell the story about um, Colm O'Connell. Uh, he sounds like a lovely man and what, a, what an amazing achievement. But he says, the winner is the loser who evaluates defeat properly. Yeah. I think that is, to me, and us here, we've talked about it, you know, from, from doing a little bit of research, that encapsulates everything about learning from failure and ultimately leading to, to win. Well, it's, I'm, I'm, I always, that's my favorite quote in the whole book. Yeah, it's great. Uh, the winner is the loser who evaluates defeat properly. And Colin O'Connell, the guy ought to be a household name. He's an Irish missionary who went to Kenya yeah. and by a whole series of accidents became coach to the Kenya athletics team. Yeah, amazing. Some of the best athletes in the world. How is it with the raw products pretty good? Yeah. The raw product the raw is pretty product good. Is good. They still need coaching. Yeah, that's they true. They still need coaching. True. And uh, yeah, the loser is the... I, I do think that. I think that... I'll tell you the other thing that came out of talking to a lot of people for the book was... And I did this with Sam Tompkins at the weekend. That mm. I always ask sports people, which of these two phrases most captures you? I love winning or I hate losing. They're nearly all I hate losing. Mm. The top guys are nearly all I hate losing. Mm. Um, which sometimes then manifests itself in a, 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 you know, I've been very lucky to work with and, and we've spoken a lot to top, top world-class world champions. With that aspect, you're absolutely right. That, that it's the fear of losing mm. 
but sometimes leaves a void after winning. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, I, you know, I this may be to do with the mental health stuff that we were talking yeah. about earlier, but I didn't enjoy any of our election wins. Really? And I always resent that. 1997, I was like, I wasn't even there. My head wasn't even there. I was, Sorry. I was thinking about the next thing and the next thing, and I just wasn't in the moment at all. Mm. Couldn't enjoy it. Was desperate to get away. And and I think with... I, I, back to Mourinho, I remember... I know he's a showman and all that, but do you remember the time when he threw his Premier League medal into the crowd and it was later auctioned for some ridiculous sum of money? But I think it's part of that same thing of, right, that's done, next thing. Mm. It's, it's not... Um, so I, I think that thing about... And, and I know from, from... I think fear is a great driver, though. So I think fear of losing... The only person in the book who said who didn't even recognise or acknowledge the question was Floyd Mayweather. He, really? yeah, he said, I never, ever think about a loser. Now, that may be true, and he's never lost a fight, okay? It may be true. but I think you can say that when you've never lost a fight. Yeah, exactly. He said, and it may be true. It may be true. Um, but he said that. He said, I never, ever... He said, why would I think about losing? If you think about losing, you're going to lose. But I think fear as a driver, fear of defeat, fear of failure... I think that's what drives most of us, to be honest. There's no great victory that anybody achieves that isn't difficult. Mm. And along the way, you, you've got to have that fear, I think. Mm. What did you learn from your greatest failure? My greatest setback was the, the breakdown. Okay. Because I thought that was the end of my life, the end of my career. So I think what I learned from that was you can recover, mm -hmm. which is important. And I think I also learned that it gave me a sort of sense of resilience, mm. which I think is important. I think I've learned from my own public profile, which is, you know, mixed, mm -hmm. that there's a difference between profile and reputation. And I think it's important to hang on to that. It always makes me laugh that, you know, you get newspapers that still, I have no idea, I left nearly 20 years ago, but they still sort of want to portray me in a certain way. And I look at it and think, well, all that does is make me, you know, still the person that pe other people want to come and talk to about, you know, what I think and what I say and what I do. And so I, I, I think that, I guess that's a way of saying, I've got all these posters on my wall at home. And one of them is GGOOB, get good out of bad. Anything bad, try to turn into something good. So any failure, any setback, what, what are you going to learn from it? What are you going to take out of it? And how are you going to use that in the future? And it might be, you know, I mentioned the, the thing with Johnny Mercer. That did for a while. Uh, I, did, I did dial back a lot on my kind of social media engagements. Um, no, then I... <laughs> on we go. But I think, I, think, I think the other thing I'd say is, another of my post-its is never go to bed at night without knowing something you didn't know in the morning. So stay okay. curious. And yeah. never think you know everything. And in fact, know that you don't know everything. The, the organizations that you've worked with, and you've obviously worked extensively in Whitehall, but also Fleet Street, um, and, and have worked with and overseen uh, the military. What is it that you see the army and, and people who've served in the army being able to provide in society from what they've learned as being leaders in the army. So what is it perhaps that the army can provide uh, an awareness of and its people and the training they've had? It's interesting. We had a, a question on the podcast today with Roy Stewart and somebody who said it was in, they found it interesting, which I find it interesting, yeah. is, is, is how many of the kind of, you know, 
quite impressive political figures at the moment have come through a military background. Mm. Ben Wallace, Dan Jarvis, uh, Johnny Mercer, Tobias Elwood, Tom Tugendhat. I think what they have is that sense of purpose and discipline and organisation. I think, I think they've, they've, and I think it's an experience. I mean, even though my brother's experience in the army ended very, very badly, he never had anything but good to say about what the experience had taught him prior to that. I think you have a sense of, you know, this, if, you, if you join the army quite young, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty good education mm-hmm. in so many different ways. And then I think if you're, you know, you go through a place like this, which if this feels like it's kind of, it's quite, I don't mean academic in a kind of crusty sort of way, but this, this is a place of learning. Mm. Um, and I think that, I think the other thing that maybe you get through the military, I think there's a real danger because of the way that the, the media landscape operates now. I don't think we're nearly focused enough on our history. And I don't mean in terms of, you know, the whole sort of culture war thing. I just mean in terms of people not really studying enough things in the past from which we can learn mm-hmm. for today. And I think that's something that you maybe have mm-hmm. uh, that comes naturally to you. Yeah. And, and of course, one of the central building blocks of our leadership training here and how we operate, whether we are young young soldiers, young officers, through to very senior soldiers and very senior officers, is, is a core set of values and standards, yeah. which we uphold in everything we do yeah. uh, and, and hold people to account over them. Alison, thank you so much. We always finish on a little quick fire okay. question. So okay. which, and, and no one ever gets prompted. Uh, so we'll see, we'll, we'll see where we go, if that's okay, all right. Yes. Who's the greatest leader you've ever worked with and why? I think it would be Tony Blair. Okay. Uh, and why? If I say to you, the last 11 elections from a Labour Party perspective, go like this, lose, 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 Blair, 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 lose, 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 lose. And... There's got to be something there, I mean. And, but also, I would say, having watched him, I mentioned Kosovo, I think his two finest episodes of lead, real leadership were Kosovo and Northern Ireland. And I think Northern Ireland alone puts him in my view. And I haven't worked with that many leaders. I mean, I've, 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 I've met a lot of leaders. I've seen a lot of leaders, but I haven't worked with that many. Who do you think is the most inspirational leader from history and why? Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, you, you talk about him a lot in your... Mm. I've, you, I just think he's extraordinary what he did. And I think he did it as a... I think to, to, to hold that country together and lead it through what he did at that time. Mm. And it then set itself up for the kind of story that America has become. Mm was absolutely extraordinary. And what I think is especially extraordinary about him, he did it as a not very charismatic, a depressive, major depressive. Mm -hmm. And he did it by bringing all his closest rivals into the tent as his his closest team. Mm. I think that's a pretty amazing thing to do. Yeah, that's very interesting. Who's yours? I think Wellington... As a soldier, but also as a politician and a leader, mm. um, is someone who I've always been fascinated by. Naturally, I've always found Churchill, and it's not hackneyed, mm. you know, and it, it is a common, you know, common um, historical figure for for being a leader. But it's a good question. I was, and you know, I think there, I, I would subscribe to the school of. 
a number of different people. Um, and, you know, from history, I look at a number of different people. Personally, I've worked with some of the most amazing leaders mm. in, in the army who aren't, aren't necessarily senior officers. Some of my best soldiers were people I mm. always looked. I always try to sort of find the good, you know, a good thing and someone who worked, who I, who I was leading, who was a peer and who I was following. Mm. I think that's quite a mm. good way of looking at it. Mm. But I think Wellington is probably does it for me as a soldier. Mm. What's the most valuable leadership lesson you've learned? I think it's about the alliance between leadership and teamship. That you can't be a strong leader without a good team. You can't be a good team without a good leader. Without a good leader. And, the, and, they're both, and they've got to dovetail. Kipling said the, the strength of the pack is the wolf and the strength of the wolf is a pack. It's yeah. Probably, yeah. probably about right. Yeah. Finally, what would, uh, what would be the one piece of advice casting your mind back that you would give a young Alistair Campbell as he stepped away from Cambridge on a a road ahead of him. Put that drink down. There you go. <laughs> Alison, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. There are a multitude of questions that I know people would have liked me to ask you and that I personally would have, but in the time available, thank you so much. It's no, been it. an really absolute good. pleasure. Thank really you very good. much. Thank you. As ever, a hugely informative discussion covering a plethora of topics that will appeal to our wide audience. Notably, Alistair touched on culture and how it is shaped by the people who make up the organisation. We all own our culture and have the responsibility to both uphold it and encourage those around us to do likewise. A positive culture underpinned by strong ethos is critical for any team to be successful and reinforced by allowing innovative ideas to flourish. As Alistair stressed, ideas don't have rank, they have value and a good idea can come from anywhere. Of course, in tandem with this is setting the conditions for people to have the ability to voice their ideas and challenge perceived thinking and concepts so that they can improve our overall thinking and delivery, all areas that we've discussed at length here at the Cal. Leading on from this, our discussion hit on the need to learn from our mistakes, both as individuals and groups, and importantly, to allow those that have made mistakes the chance to make amends and learn from those lessons. We talked candidly about the impacts of mental health. This does not and should not define you. Leadership roles can be lonely and induce significant pressure leading to real concerns over mental health. Therefore, don't let yourself become consumed by the myriad of issues you're dealing with. Instead, learn how to remove yourself from that bubble and find opportunities to de-stress and detoxify. Having a confidant or someone to discuss your concerns and issues with is critical and balancing a healthy home and work balance is essential. Finally, and in line with this season's theme, we discuss strategy. The single most important thing is having a sense of what it is you're trying to achieve. Defining your mission, purpose and values are essential. Overall, it's fundamentally about having a defined objective, which is clearly understood and supported by your ability to make decisions and take the team with you. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website and of course, follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.